Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. Toby Openshaw is a documentary filmmaker from South Africa. He has been in Taiwan for 18 years. South Africa was in turmoil back then. Toby wanted to find a safe place for his family and children, and that's why he came to Taiwan. Last week, Toby was telling me how he just wants to tell people's stories, especially of people who don't get to tell their own stories. He ended last week talking about how he was following the story of betel nut beauties, girls who make a living by selling stimulants called betel nuts that you chew on. However, there's a twist to that story, and Toby begins this week by telling how that story turned out. And you say you've been following this woman, the same woman, yes. for 10 years. Yes. So You're still in touch with her. Yes, and actually, that's now kind of a little bit sad because I uh, was going to have a photo exhibition about uh, a little bit earlier this year, a sort of a retrospective of the last 10 years. And so I contacted with her and I invited her to come to the exhibition. And then she sent a message back saying that she's now married and even though her husband knows that she used to do this job, his family doesn't and she doesn't want to have too much explaining and blah, blah, blah. Uh. So she actually asked me to not show her photos anymore. Oh, really? And so okay. this always puts a documentarian in a, in a bit of a moral dilemma because... Um, you know, at the time she agreed to be photographed and interviewed and filmed, but she has now withdrawn that mm. consent. And so, yeah, I have to honor her wishes and, and to not show her photos anymore. And that uh-huh. makes it difficult in terms of the book that I had planned and so on, because because I've been following her for so long. You know, right. she had a you know an interesting career where she did the Beatles like Girl thing for a while, then went away, then came back to it, then started went to university. You know, mm-hmm. put herself through college, mm-hmm. worked as a as an accountant. Or in a, with an accounting firm, hated it, decided that she actually wants to go back to the street working in, with customers and then started managing some Bitter Nut Girl stores and so on, you know. Mm-hmm. So she has a really, really interesting story. But unfortunately, I can't really tell that story anymore because she doesn't want it to be told. Yeah. You know? But you do a lot more other stuff too. Can we talk right. about those? So, um, you know, I got tired of being uh, accused of being, being a dirty old man just photographing beautiful <laughs> girls. And so, but you say about do they come to me? I mean, stories tend to come to me, you know. So this time it was about the, the indigenous people in Taiwan. So Taiwan has a population of 25 million people and about 2.3% or so of those are actually indigenous Austronesians. So the interesting thing about them is that they were the uh, originators of the entire Pacifica migration. So people from Hawaii, in Fiji, Samoa, and all the way down to New Zealand, the Maori people are actually originated from Taiwan between six and 3,000 years ago. I really got interested in this subject and the fact that, again, we have a population that is previously disadvantaged, been denied a voice, have been denied their culture and their language, and are now fighting to, to uh, get it back. And so in the last 18 years, they have made great strides in reclaiming their identity as Taiwan indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And so that connection with those people has led me to many interesting stories in the realm of myth, in the realm of just pure straight on the ground activism, 
and in that idea of connection across the oceans you know so i traveled to new zealand a few years ago interviewed some maori students there brought some of them over to taiwan uh, for a cultural exchange project um, uh-huh. and have since done had quite a few interactions with maori people that maori connection is just really fascinating to me because you know when when we were in in new zealand i went to the wairoa maori film festival and we screened my friend tony coolidge's film which is about his search for identity in taiwan and one of the things he did was he interviewed an old auntie from the Atahal tribe who still has the facial tattoos. You know? Yes. Very few of them still left now. So when we screened the film and, and she came on uh, there in front of this Maori audience and she's this old auntie and she's sort of like bent over way over 80 or maybe even 90 already. And the interviewer says to her, oh, uh, grandma, this gentleman here wants to talk to you. And she sort of laughs and she says, ha, 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 why does he want to talk to me? I look like a monkey. And all the Maori people in the audience went, oh, she looks just like my grandma. She sounds and looks and acts just like my grandma. Wow. And suddenly there was that connection, you know. So that to me was just beautiful, how we can just ride across the ocean and over 3,000 years we can feel a connection between people you know so that that was really really special i believe you were now working on a documentary yeah so uh last year i heard kind of out of the blue the newly elected president of taiwan Tsai Ing-wen, announced that she was going to make an apology to the indigenous people that really made me sit up straight because there have been attempts at apologies in other countries so in canada with the first nations native americans maori people in particular and uh, aboriginals in australia have demanded and been given various degrees of apologies most of which did not turn out well you Mm -hmm. know or people are not satisfied with so when i heard this and it seemed to be somewhat unforced you know that wasn't that there were huge campaign of apologizing although i mean i subsequently uh, learned obviously that there has been for a long time there have been calls for an apology but anyway it wasn't that obvious and out on the street and so i thought wow this is an amazing thing and it's unique in the world you know if, if a president is so openly going to apologize for past injustices That'll be cool. So I'm going to make a film about this. So I started going around to my friends in the indigenous villages and in the city, uh, trying to get a, a, a feel for what are, what are people's hopes and expectations for this. And I was kind of surprised that most people were pretty negative about it. And they were like, oh, yeah, we've heard those before. Uh, we can't trust the government, blah, 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 you know. So again, I was like, well, we're going to have to find out what is the real truth here. I've been filming just again off my own bat and out of my own pocket in August last year. She made the apology. In my opinion, it was very full and complete. It set a timeline for things to be getting placed for restitution, right? Because right. you can't just apologize. You can't just say, I'm sorry. You have to make things Some right. Some promises. Right. Yeah. And so putting things in motion to make things right. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lynn. The weekend after I interviewed Toby, the documentary about President Tsai Ing-wen's apology to the indigenous people was shown at the Academia Seneca, which is Taiwan's top research body, and it had its first premiere the same weekend. Toby interviewed many different kinds of people for the documentary. We're talking about politicians, the indigenous people, and so on and so forth. 
How were you able to make these voices willing to talk to you? I did not have any difficulty for people to talk to me. They want to tell their story again, you know. People want to be heard. And so politicians' uh, interest to tell their side of the story, and of course people in the villages and elsewhere, it's in their interest to have any opportunity to tell their story. And they're also used to only the local press being interested in their stories. For a, a, an international journalist, filmmaker, they're always interested in that, so that they feel that I'm, and I hope I will be able to tell their story more broadly and um, with an international perspective and to an international audience. I struggled for a long time about how to structure this film. Is it going to be just only those people's voices? Am I going to have an editorial slant to it? You know, how do I present it? And after lots of conversations with many people, I figured out that the best way is just to tell the story honestly from my perspective. To say, hi, I'm a foreigner in Taiwan, and I observed these things, and I talked to this person, and he said this. I talked to that person, and he said something different. And I talked to that person, and they said something different. And here they are together, you know. So I don't make a value judgment on what anybody says. I'm just, from my perspective, presenting what they say. Do you have a team of people, or are you all on your own? I'm pretty much on my own, but I do have some people who occasionally can help me out. So I've had various help from translators. You know, that's really important because as an outsider and as someone who doesn't speak Chinese all that well, it's actually better for me to have a translator and I, they go forward and they chit-chat with people and they make a connection with them and they hear their stories and I can be a little bit behind and pay attention to my camera and you know get a nice shot and just feed them with questions now and then and so on but because i found that when i try to shoot and interview ah. myself then something gets lost either the interview goes off the rails or i'm not paying attention to the camera and it goes out of focus or whatever you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. so it's it's really hard to work completely by yourself like this but then i'm very fortunate to have an excellent video editor william chen We've worked together on several projects in the past, and so he is editing this for me. So again, I can't edit this by myself because all the interviews are in Chinese. But so yeah, I trust him uh, with the political knowledge and uh, understanding what we're trying to say with the film and everything. He's putting a lot of his own insight and understanding in shaping where the film goes. You know. Now it sounds to me that you're going to be here for good. Oh uh, yeah, pretty much. At least much. I don't hear you moving anywhere else, and probably even retire here in Taiwan. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. I, I can see that. And Taiwan has so many stories and so many layers. You know that it it will never be boring. That's for sure. Yes, especially from your point of view. Yeah. Mm. So where do you want to go from here? Yeah, you well, still... you know, I want to take a break when this film is finished. Um, oh, yeah, sure. And depending on how successful it is, I may be asked to go and screen it elsewhere. I, you know, I'll present it to film festivals, especially indigenous film festivals around the world. Oh. Because I really hope that people, especially other indigenous communities, can learn from the Taiwan experience as well. You know, Especially in Taiwan, people don't always acknowledge or understand that they are part of this bigger Austronesian world. You know, They're kind of insular and they think, oh, we are all just stuck here. So one of the things I'm looking at next is to have an indigenous Austronesian film festival to invite films from, for instance, my friend Leo runs the Wairoa Film Festival in, in New Zealand, and he can put together a Pacifica short film festival, which is films all made by people from Samoa, Fiji, Hawaii, those places, and bring it over here and actually travel around with it in the villages and show it, screen it to the people in the villages, just so they can see, wow, there are people in 
Fiji, who look like us and who have similar issues, maybe they're a little bit ahead of us or maybe they're a little bit behind. We are a bit better than this uh, at dealing with language issues or whatever it is. Just make them aware and connect them with their Austronesian roots. So, right. so uh, that would be that would be a really great something. Right. So I'm a really to, good cultural exchange. Yeah. At my age now, what I really enjoy doing is, for instance, I run a monthly get together called Taipei Filmmaker Nights. Okay. And so I, we, I invite a speaker who comes and talk about their project, about their challenges, how they overcome it. And uh, we have, you know, a group of filmmakers and people interested in film. Who Foreigners? Come, yeah, mostly. Well, okay. Uh, about 60, uh, 70, well, something like that. Mm. So that's, that's an opportunity for people to exchange ideas and then also to meet up with people that they can collaborate with. So from sure. that, several collaborative projects have come. I'm launching now, uh, just this year, the Taipei Short Film Development Initiative. So, yeah, so we just, you know, we, we have to help each other, and that's what I'm trying to do. Oh, that is great. Well, I wish I had more time to hear all your great stories, you know. <laughs> but um, before we say goodbye, I want to pop your question. Mm. What's the first thing you think of when I say a place that you think that you think is the most beautiful place in Taiwan? Oh, very easy. It's the town called Qingquan. And it's up in the Ufong Mountains in the Sinju area. Okay. And it is a sort of a series of villages, and it's a very deep valley with the river running down in it. Mm-hmm. And the town itself, you know, has got Father Barry's church is just on the little hillside overlooking the river. Uh, there's a suspension bridge over the river. There's a hot spring. And it's a very historic place too. So Taiwanese writer called Sun Mao. I don't know if you know yes. her. She, she used to hang out there. So yeah. there's a house for Sun Mao there. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she and Father Barry used to be good friends. And then also Jiang Liang, the old warlord who was kept under house arrest, actually also had a house there. He was oh. kept there for like 13 years. Oh, you know more Taiwan's history than I do. I know a lot of <laughs> Taiwan history, yes. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so that place is absolutely gorgeous. And it's so wonderful. I go there maybe... Maybe every two, three months, I try to get out there and go stay a weekend. That's where I first got into contact with Taiwan indigenous people for a workshop that we ran there. I have friends there. It's it's just a fantastic place. And I feel healed in my soul every time I go there. Oh, all right. So this place is called Qingquan, Qingquan. right over in Xinzu in the mountains. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much, Toby. Well, hope you continue to do great. I'm sure you will because you're doing so much for the Taiwanese people. And I can tell you've got a great love for the people here. Yeah, get your message out with uh, all your documentaries because I think uh, you, you just got a great heart to help people. Thank you very much. Right. I, I Thank my you, best Toby. It's so great to talk to you. 